0: I wanted to be in Deuteronomy tonight, but this afternoon the Lord really challenged my heart to come back to this thought, to build on it just a little bit. If you were not here on Sunday and you didn't hear the message, would you just slip up your hand so I know how much review to do? Okay, so we've got a little bit of review to do. Won't spend long there, but I need to set the table for you before we build on this. Titus 2, 7 through 8. Let me read two verses here. This is in the middle of a thought. The Apostle Paul is teaching something very specific, but let me grab this phrase here. We'll build from what we did Sunday. Titus 2, 7 through 8. In all things, showing myself a pattern of good works. In doctrine, showing uncorruptness, gravity, sincerity, sound speech that cannot be condemned. That he that is of the contrary part may be ashamed, having no evil thing to say of you. Let's pray, and then we'll build on our thought from Sunday, the Lord's help. Heavenly Father, God, again, we come back into your presence, and Lord, your people are here yet again. And God, we're knocking, we're seeking your face, and Lord, tonight, our heart is to be encouraged, our heart is to learn, to grow, and to change. Lord, we pray that you'd use thy word to inspect our lives and our hearts just now, Lord, again, we pray for our children, our teenagers next door. Be with them, move in their services, touch their hearts and lives. Lord, that the ride home from church would be one of victory of speech and talk about you and your son. In Jesus' name we pray, amen and amen. Be reminded what's being taught here, specifically by the Apostle Paul, is integrity. He's teaching reverence for the things of God. He's teaching the incorruptibility of Christians. In other words, that Christians are called to be different than people who are not Christians. Say amen. God's called you to live differently than what you were before Christ. There is an expectation on each and every one of you. I did say this Sunday, but if you want to play football, you want to be successful at playing football, then you must know and understand the rules of football. You have to even know the position in which you play on the team. If you're on the field, you've got to know what your position is and how it's expected to play out. If you're a quarterback and every time you get the ball hyped to you, you think that you have the job and the role of the running back, well, then you're probably going to wind up playing for a school like Clemson. Uh, If you're a studied, well-learned athlete that loves football, loves God, loves country, and has an American flag on the back of his Ford or Chevy pickup truck, then more likely you know the game of football, you know your position well, and you play for Roll Tide Alabama football. So in that thought, you as a Christian, you need to know your role. You need to know what's expected of you. How would you like to learn cricket? And you may know what cricket is and how it works and the basics of it, but how would you like to be put on a professional cricket field tomorrow and be expected to play at a A level where you can compete. Do we have any cricket players here tonight? Don't raise your hand. There's not a single cricket player in here. But if you're going to play something, if you're going to do something worthwhile, if you're going to spend your time doing something, uh, my heart is I want to know what's expected of me. I do not like getting caught off guard. The same principle applies to God's expectations for my life. I want to please him I want to live a way that he's satisfied with. And the only way I can do that is by knowing what he expects of me, by knowing what uh, the game is, if you will, the game of life and those expectations. And what we talked about Sunday, where we built this thought from, was on the, the pattern of good work, the doctrine that Paul's teaching here. From here you're going to grow, you're going to learn. God didn't just save you to leave you stagnant. God didn't just save you to flip the switch, to check the box and leave you where you are. God saved you so that you could grow. God saved you so you could advance. God saved you so that you could get busy for his kingdom. There is a purpose to this life. If you think getting saved and being a Christian is your get out of hell free card so that you can live as you please and how you desire and and do it without any fear of death, then you've got this whole thing wrong. And you probably need to ask yourself if you're really saved. If you come to church, you check the box, you sit in the chair and you have a religious action and you think, well, God's happy with me. I acknowledge he exists. I wrote my tithe check. I'm good. And now I can go live and do and please myself as I want to. I can live for myself. That's not Christianity. You don't understand the expectations. You don't understand what's required. That's why the Bible teaches emphatically that you grow in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus. The Apostle Paul adds here that you do it in a way that's a pattern. Uh, There is a system. There is an order. How many people know that God is a God of order? God is a God of regulation. God is a God of consequence. God is a God that has structure, even for the home. He has structure for the house. There's daddy, then there's mama, then there's the kids. And the kids are to obey their mama, and the kids are to obey their daddy. And if they don't obey mama, or if they don't obey daddy, there's consequences. God is a God of structure and order. And in the way you live your life, there is that same structure. There is that same consequence. God's interested in what you're doing in the time in which you're not sitting in church. God's interested in what you're talking about, even the privacy of your own phone or your own home. God's interested in what you're thinking about, your thought life and what you think upon. What you think about is what you will become. God's interested in all of these aspects of every human being on earth. And what we talked about Sunday was the fact that consistency with God is the keeper or the guardian of power with God. 1 Corinthians 15, 58, we use this Sunday. Let me give this to you again. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. For as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Always, always, that's the key. Always abounding. This is a consistent walk that you're to walk. The work that you do for the Lord, all the things that you put into the walk of faith that you have, your reading of your Bible, your prayer life, don't ever let that become cliche. Don't ever let that just become a saying that you hear without your heartstrings being tugged upon. When I say praying, think about what your prayer life has been today and allow God to assess your heart, assess your life. When I talk about reading the Word, when was the last time? Was it Sunday? Let's be honest. Was it Sunday, the last time you opened up the Bible, looking for His truth, pursuing Him? If it was the last time you picked up your Bible, then I'm afraid to tell you that tonight as you come in, it's going to be difficult for you to hear the preacher, to hear the preached word of God because you're malnourished. You're a sickly patient. I can't just give you a steak dinner and potato and salad and banana pudding. You, you are spiritually malnourished. Now because you have chosen You have made the choice to be malnourished. The word of God is available to you. Prayer is open to you because you have chosen to be a malnourished Christian. Now I have to hold you like a little baby and we've got to spoon a little milk in your mouth. We've got to bring you back. That's why on Sunday mornings often it feels like we've got to do 15 or 20 minutes of spiritual CPR on the service that you can't just plug into where you were on Wednesday night is because everybody's coming back in with the same traits and the same actions and the same malnourishment that they brought in on Wednesday night. People choosing not to be consistent. And if it ever feels a little tight here, it ever feels like, boy, he's preaching truth, but man, it's like concrete in here. There's a reason. It's called inconsistency in God's people. You see, I'm not here to entertain you. Uh-oh. I'm not here to tickle your ears. I'm not here to run and jump and, and make loud noises and you go, yeah, that's a boy, getting. No, that's not what this is. This is not a rodeo. This is God's house. And we're God's people. And if you want results from the pulpit, then there must be results in your life, those that are sitting in blue chairs. I can't carry you and your weight on my back. Spiritually speaking, the pastor comes and what I'm to do is to tap into what's out here. Oh, yeah, we'll get the Word of God. We'll preach the Word of God in truth. And those that are living consistent lives, when we make eye contact and the Spirit bears witness, boy, something happens in the service. And you might even have an old gray-haired saint say, whoo, glory to God, because of the presence of God that's in the service. Why don't we have that anymore? Because of inconsistency. Inconsistency. If you're here for a show, if you're here to check the box, If you're here just to be seen and make yourself feel good for the week, then things aren't going to go the way you want them to go. But if you're here and you've been in the word and you've been feeding yourself and you're not malnourished and you've been in prayer and you're seeking the Lord, we're not talking about sinless perfection. There are things I thought today I wish I had not thought. Like, boy, if I could, I would come through this camera on this Zoom call and I would rearrange this. But is that of the Lord? No. You know what the point is? We're all flesh, we're all human. Consistency is the key to all of this. This is the disease of our generation. Inconsistency is the disease of American Christianity in 2023. It's our disease, it's what will eventually kill us. You know what's gonna shut down more churches in the next five years? It's not going to be pastors that didn't know how to preach. It's not going to be pastors that didn't go to their study and beg God for the message. It's going to be because people sitting in chairs and pews became so cold and callous and inconsistent that there is no spiritual life. And if there's nothing there to stir the saints of God, then you might as well put boards on the doors and leave it alone. Inconsistency will be our destruction And until we take radical ownership of our own lives and radical ownership for what happens behind this pulpit and what happens in the heart of this church, inconsistency will be the death of every church in America. Because there's so many things that can replace the time, the effort, and the energy that you should be putting towards the things of God. This is the blueprint of Satan. The little iPhone or Samsung internet connected device that you have in your pocket, your hand, your lap, if you're a rare bird that keeps it in your car during church. Wow, I don't even do that. I've got two sitting right there. That was the devil's blueprint, his sneak attack. That is the Pearl Harbor, spiritually speaking, for the modern American church. The internet in handheld devices that have little to no accountability that will be our demise don't worry about russian invasion don't worry about the chinese taking over worry about what's in your hand tonight your device what's in your children's bedroom connected to the internet that is the greatest disease we have is inconsistency we talked about consistency sunday in great detail i gave four things confidence with god Closeness with God, communication with God, and faithfulness with God. We gave examples of that. Go back and listen to that if you would, but this is the formula for power with God, we said. Then we talked about the inconsistency with God that comes with a great consequence, that Jesus himself in Revelation 3, he talks about the water that ran in the two-mile-long aqueduct under the city known as Laodicea. Colossae was known for its cold mountain water Heropolis for its healing springs of hot water. But then in the middle, you've got Laodicea. And Laodicea has water that's tepid. It's lukewarm. It's nasty. It doesn't taste good. It runs underneath the city. And Jesus described the works, the assessment of that church in Laodicea. He described them as that water. You're not cold. You're not hot. I would rather you be ice cold and completely reject me than I would you be lukewarm. He said, because when I inspect you and I take a taste of you, it makes me sick to my stomach and I will spew you out of my mouth. That's what God thinks of inconsistency. It makes him sick. So back to this pattern and from here tonight for just a minute, we'll build on this thought. I want us to realize just how difficult what we are talking about really is. Sometimes you can hear a message like we preach Sunday The Lord can really speak to you. And the order can feel really tall. God, this is a really big thing we're talking about. This is the way I live my life. This is my mentality. This is the way I look at things. This is my worldview. And God, you're asking to come into those spaces of my entire life. And you want access in every little aspect of my life. But you don't just want it on Sunday and Wednesday. You want it every day. God, this is a tall order. I may have to change friends. I may have to change the way I post online. I may have to change the music I listen to. God, this may cost me something. And if you're not careful, the tall order of what's required will muddy the water and instead of you diving in headfirst, saying, God, I want this for my life, you'll go, well, the order's too tall and there's nothing I can do. I'll never pass this test. That's the greatest excuse we can come up with uh, oftentimes when the order feels too too tall, too much. I can't do this. Why even try? Let me just be comfortable and not have this over my head. I don't want to feel guilty. I don't want to feel like I'm letting him down. So I'll just leave it alone and let somebody else live that way because I could never. That's not what God said in his word. If he has saved you, then he has given you the opportunity to live in the way that pleases him. Oh, think of that. God did not save you and then leave you strung out over here in the desert with no hope of pleasing him in the way you live. There is an opportunity for you to please God with the way that you live. He didn't save you for you to fail. He saved you and you have the ability and you have the heart that now you can live for him and please him. That's why Paul talked about the living sacrifice, that I would lay myself on the altar of my own desire, and that I would live for the Lord. I just can't do that Christian living. I love that preacher, love that church, but boy, that Christian living, mm, just can't do it. I, 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 I heard somebody say this in the last two weeks. I'm just too country. What in the world are you talking about? You don't know what country people are. Uh, Country people used to be God's people. People that carried a Bible. Yeah, they had a 12-gauge shotgun and a Remington 700 in the back of their pickup truck, but they also had a big old Bible that they carried around with them. Uh, Those were God's people, and they didn't put up with much foolishness. And the way they lived their lives, it was different. God's not interested in how redneck you are. He's not interested in how hillbilly you can be. He's interested in your heart. Well, I can never, I can never give up that. That's the bar scene on Friday night's my thing. That's where my friends are. Yeah, an inconsistency with God comes with a great price. That's not popular, but it's the truth. We can't put ourselves in some sort of box and say, well, God saved me, but no, God saved you. Now get to work living for him because he wants your heart. He wants you. This pattern though is where I really want us to go because this isn't easy. But I want you to look at the greatest example of what we talked about Sunday and how he lived this out and what you can expect. This is what I want you to take home is how he lived his life. I'll introduce you here in just a moment to who I'm talking about. But how he lived his life consistently and then how you can respond to what comes after There's a pattern here in the New Testament. Some of this I have preached before. Some of it just this this afternoon, God's really revealed to my heart. But look at this. Consistency must be described as war. Consistency with God and your efforts must be described as war. I'm gonna be very careful, but I'm gonna say something that everyone in this room needs to hear me. Every mom and dad that's here, you've got to listen to what I'm saying. There is a movement happening within the Southern Baptist Church, some independent Baptist churches, Presbyterians, put whatever label you want on that group. There are voices saying things like this, and it's alarming to me. Well, we've got to be careful using words like war when it comes to spiritual things. God is a God of love, God is a God of peace. And we don't need to worry about fear. And we don't need to worry about war. And that sounds too violent and too brutal. Listen to me with all the love in my heart. If you want to live for Jesus in 2023 and survive, then you must understand that to be consistent with God is nothing more than all-out war. It's war! The devil has already declared war on you. He's already declared war on your babies. He's got a blueprint to be successful. And because some of you won't be consistent with God, his blueprint will be successful. That's just the truth. So when you want to get your flip-flops off and realize that there really is a war that we're fighting and put on your boots and get to battle, then you'll know what it is to be consistent. This isn't a day at the beach. This isn't light a candle. You say, well, I, I want peace and I want joy. The only way you'll find peace, the only way you'll find joy, the only way you'll find contentment is in this war. Because it can only come from Christ. But you'll never know who Christ is or what he wants for your life until you go to war. What are you going to war with? Ephesians six twelve tells you what you're at war with. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, Okay, so let's go ahead and put this out there for all the YouTube hackers and Twitter bots. There's this label that's being put on Baptists especially. Labels that are being put on even non-denominational preachers who preach in a particular way. Preachers that preach the truth. Let's just go ahead and say that. That if the problem for America is that we are radical in our way of thinking. This is going to make some of you uncomfortable, but you might as well go ahead and embrace it. Our children are next door. Listen to what I'm telling you, that we're too radical and that because we cannot accept a marriage between two men or a marriage between two women or a marriage between a man that calls himself a woman and another woman or a man that's actually a man with another man, because we will not accept it, Not because we have the high horse of morality, but because Jesus loves us. We love him. He died for us. He changed our lives and we adhere to his word. But because we preach that as truth, that we are violent threats to democracy. Get ready. How do you think persecution is going to come in 2023, 2024 for the church? They'll come for the pulpit. And if you're not being consistent for God now, then what's going to happen the first time that someone from a federal law enforcement agency walks in the middle of our service and arrests me for what I preached on Wednesday night in front of the whole congregation? You say that'll never happen. Yeah, we also said that a virus from China would never keep us from out of this building either. That's the war that we're fighting. Uh, For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, Ephesians 6.12 says. In other words, the people are not the enemy. The Democratic Party and its platforms are not my enemy. I weep for them. I weep for Republicans who are lost and undone without Jesus. I weep for anyone who doesn't know Jesus. Jesus. But the war is not with other people. The war, according to the word of God, is principalities, powers against the rules of darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Influence. Every time you taste of victory in your consistency with God, there will come a fight. Every time. It says, for we wrestle not against flesh and blood, not to say that there's not a fight. It says, for we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but we do wrestle against these levels of Satan's government. The principalities, powers, rulers of darkness, against spiritual wickedness in high places. This is a struggle. Living for the Lord is a fight. But looking at Jesus, I want to look at his life, how he lived. This is the son of God that we're talking about here. But almost in every instance of life where Jesus experienced a great outpouring, where Jesus healed someone, where the presence of God the Father and the Holy Spirit were present, stay with me on this. Follow this now, this pattern. Every time you see something miraculous take place, every time that the Trinity, I'm telling you now, you talk about something the devil hates, he hates the Trinity, Every time you see a picture or a depiction or the actual physical manifestation of the Trinity in the New Testament, right after that great victory, right after that great outpouring, you will see a war ensue, a battle ensue, and oftentimes physical manifestations of spiritual warfare. Jesus is the Son of God, all God, all man, living this life in the flesh for you and for me to have an example. Now look at the example that Jesus, the son of God, lived for you and for me to see. Notice when Jesus was born. Notice when he was born. Matthew 2, verse 16. Jesus has been born. The magi have been now to the king. They've been to Herod. And Herod knows he's been duped. Look at what takes place. This is Matthew 2, 16. You don't have to turn there. I'll read this one verse to you. Then Herod, when he saw that he was mocked of the wise men, was exceeding wroth and sent forth and slew all the children that were in Bethlehem and in all the coasts thereof from two years old and under, according to the time which he had diligently inquired of the wise men. Jesus has been on earth not even two years and already Satan has a plan to get the heart of a man who's in a high place, a man with great power, a man with so much influence that he can say with the words coming out of his mouth, he can condemn an entire generation of male children, two and younger, with just a few words. What kind of evil, what kind of wickedness would have to live in the heart of a man that Satan would influence him to a place that he would say, I'm so concerned about losing power that I'll destroy every baby alive. The same spirit that's on America tonight. That's the answer. It's right in front of you. It's showing its face to you. The same spirit that lived in Herod's heart lives in every Planned Parenthood in America. They are at war with truth and life and with your Lord. Wake up and be consistent. There's a battle afoot. Jesus was born and he tried to have him killed. Go to Luke chapter three. Notice the baptism of Jesus. We don't have time to read all these verses, but I so want you to see this. He's born. Herod initiates death. Luke 3, Jesus is baptized. John announces, behold the lamb. The Trinity is revealed. Father, son in the flesh, in the arms of John, the baptizer, and the Holy Spirit in a physical manifestation as that of a dove. You go to Luke 3, and there's the baptism. All that glory, all that power. God the Father speaking, this is my son. The Holy Spirit of God comes. There's your first instance of the Trinity together. And then right after, right after this great outpouring of glory and power, Luke 4, the first verse. And Jesus being full of the Holy Ghost, Think about what the Bible is saying. The word of God says this, that the son of God was full of the Holy Ghost. All God and all man returned from Jordan from his baptism and was led by the spirit into the wilderness being 40 days tempted of the devil. And in those days he did eat nothing and when they were ended, he afterward hungered. Power, glory, manifestation, victory, outpouring, the Trinity confirmed, the Father, Son, and the Spirit. And the moment he leaves the Jordan, there's not a demon. There's not an imp from hell. The devil himself is so irritated by what's just happened in the Jordan at Bethabara. The Son, the Father, and the Spirit came together, Satan would say to his adversarial role. They came together. They showed themselves. They revealed themselves. The forerunner, he was there, and he said, behold, the Lamb, oh, we've got to fight. We've got to fight. Satan only fights what he fears. And then Jesus is tempted of the devil." Himself. Let me help you with something that will really encourage you. There's not a man, there's not a woman in this room who has ever faced the devil himself face to face. The devil himself has never afflicted you. You wouldn't be able to handle it. You're talking about a supernatural being that can destroy you. Now, for a saved person who is under the blood, whose blood-bought born again and has the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, you'll never face that face-to-face. What you're facing are lesser demons. What you're facing is the principalities. What you're facing are those of the one-third who were kicked out of heaven, the angels that fell with Lucifer. You've never faced the devil face-to-face, never. And sometimes we give the devil a little too much credit for what is actually our flesh, well, the devil's given me a rough time. No, your flesh has given you a rough time today. Maybe sometimes we give the devil a little bit too much credit. It's not that we don't wrestle against the darkness. It's just to say that Jesus, as a man, faced a temptation that you could never stand up to. Yet he did it and came out just as holy, just as perfect, Just as sinless as the moment he went into the desert for temptation. But notice how he won the victory. He is the Son of God, but you cannot tempt the Son of God. You can't tempt him. You can't. You you cannot offer anything to the Son of God. Jesus was all God, but the devil was not tempting the God aspect, the God personality of our Lord. He was appealing to the man. And so Jesus went to that 40 days of temptation after all that victory and came out victorious yet again by quoting the word of God. The devil will take a little word of God and he'll twist it and he'll turn it and he'll say this and he'll say that and then Jesus would rebuke him with simple truth from the word of God. And he did it so that you could see the pattern, what's required for you to continue in your consistency. I hear this a lot. Well, I have a problem. I'm susceptible to this problem. I'm really, you know, I've got an issue. And it's got the best of me. And and sometimes I wonder if we don't give a concession speech a little too early in the fight. Could it be if that we would be consistent to read the word of God and pray that the big problems that we're facing would somehow just sort of evaporate? That's what Jesus did. He's being tempted by the devil himself and how does he win? By quoting the word of God. And oftentimes when inconsistent people are tempted, the first thing they do is give in because of their inconsistency. Jesus preached in his home. This was his hometown in a synagogue in Nazareth. Luke four eighteen. Jesus goes into his hometown synagogue. He quotes Isaiah sixty one. He says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, recovering of sight to the blind, and to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of our Lord. Verse 19, the acceptable year of the Lord is jubilee. It's where prisoners' debts are forgiven and the cell doors are opened. Everyone in that synagogue should have shouted the victory so loud they could hear it in Jerusalem, but that's not what happened. The Son of God has just announced himself and what his intentions for being here are, and instead of the synagogue erupting with victory, they erupt with anger. And they get so mad that they take Jesus to the brow of Nazareth with an intention to kill him. And to this day, Islam so hates what Jesus stands for that to this day in Arabic, English, French, and German up on the brow of Nazareth, the Muslims have printed a marker that says this is the place where Jesus of Nazareth was thrown to his death. They love that story. They bleed into that anger that happened in the synagogue. Because if they can, can feel in their hearts a little hope that maybe he died that day, then maybe they aren't as blind as they think they are. The Bible says that Jesus passed through the midst of them. So not only do you now have the Son of God revealing himself in the synagogue, but now you have the Son of God performing a miracle in front of people who wanted to kill him. And then what happens next? Well, look what happens. Luke 4, 31. It'll be on your screen. This is right after he passes through the midst of them. This is the same chapter. And he came down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and taught them the Sabbath days. And they were astonished at his doctrine, for his word was with power. Mm, Power. And in the synagogue, there was a man which had a spirit of an unclean devil, And cried out with a loud voice saying, let us alone. What have we to do with thee, thou Jesus of Nazareth? You're talking about a devil in the synagogue who speaks to Jesus, but he speaks with authority because he knows that is the son of God, this Jesus of Nazareth. You see, even the devil himself can't help but admit that he's God. Victory, power, announcement, miracle, boom. In Capernaum and there's a devil. Spiritual warfare. And I would dare say that many people have never felt the presence of a physical manifestation of spiritual warfare to this level. But Jesus did. And yet, he remained consistent. He remained sinless. That's how I know he remained consistent. He remained perfect, even with all the temptation and the war. Comes to Capernaum and there's a devil. Luke 8, he stills the water. They fall asleep. There comes a great storm. The wind on the lake. The water fills up the boat. The disciples are in jeopardy. This is in Luke eight twenty three, 23. Verse 24 says, and they came to him and awoke him saying, Master, we perish. Then he arose and rebuked the wind and the raging of the water and they ceased and there was a calm The disciples say to each other, what manner of man is this, that the winds and sea obey him? Great victory, a miracle. What kind of guy is this? He just calmed the waves and the sea. Look at verse 26. Right after, this is immediately, and they arrived. This is the same boat trip to the country of the Gadarenes, which is over against Galilee. When he went forth to land, there met him out of the city a certain man, which had devils long time. This is someone who has been possessed for a long time. This is someone who has warred and gone against light and who is possessed of a devil and wore no clothes, neither abode in any house, but in the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and with a loud voice He said this, this is the demon, the devil talking to Jesus. What have I to do with thee, Jesus, thou son of the most high? I love what God made him say. Thou son of the most high, I beseech thee, torment me not. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For oftentimes it had caught him and he was kept bound with chains and in fetters And he broke the bands and was driven of the devil into the wilderness. And Jesus asked him, saying, What is thy name? And he said, Legion, because many devils were entered into him. This is how far gone this guy is. And they besought him that he would not command them to go out into the deep. There was a herd of many swine feeding on the mountain. And they besought him that he would suffer them to enter into them. And he suffered them. Then went the devils out of the man and entered into the swine and the herd ran violently down a steep place into the lake and were choked. Calms the seas, calms the storm. It's a witness to his followers. And the moment it's over, the dust settles and the victory's been won, their lives have been saved. There was a devil waiting and yet he remained consistent. Not just for the glory of the Father, but for the example of his bride. And the truth is, church, if we are going to embrace this idea, this lifestyle that God has called us to live of consistency in the word, consistency in prayer, consistency in giving. You want to know the health of a church? You want to know the health of your spiritual life? Look at what you're willing to give to God. I'm not just talking about money. He wants your money. But he also wants your time, your efforts, your thought life. I'll close with this. I know I'm a few minutes over, but we'll pray and go home. The transfiguration in Luke 9. He takes James, Peter, and John. They go to a mountain in Luke chapter 9. Verse 28 says, And it came to pass about eight days after these sayings. He took those three men and went up to a mountain to pray. Jesus prays, there's so much glory, there's so much power that his garment, his fashion, his raiment changes. The fashion of his countenance was altered and his raiment was white and glistering. And behold, there talked with him two men, which were Moses and Elias, who appeared in glory and spake of his decease, which he should accomplish at Jerusalem. We don't have time to read all of this, but Jesus is there praying and he's in the same fashion that he would have appeared In heaven. The same way Jesus would look in glory in heaven, he decided that before he would go to the cross, that one more time before he got to Jerusalem, he would know what it would taste like. He would know what it would be like to be in his holy fashion in the presence of his Father. God the Father's there, the Holy Spirit's there in the Shekinah glory, and then Moses is there representing all of those that have died in the faith. And Elijah is there representing the church who will be raptured out one day. I'm praying to God I get to be part of that generation. All that glory, all that power. (laughs) Little Peter's so messed up, he says, I I wish we could stay right here. I'll make a tabernacle for you and and we'll have Moses and Elijah as house guests. And we'll stay right here and have Jubilee on this mountain. But Jesus had a different plan he takes him off the mountain and look what the Bible says. Look what the Bible says. And it came to pass, this is the 37th verse, right after the transfiguration, and it came to pass that on the next day, when they were come down from the hill, much people met him. And Behold, a man of the company cried out, saying, Master, I beseech thee, look upon my son, for he is my only child. And lo, a spirit, take him And he suddenly crieth out and it teareth him that he foamed again and bruising him hardly departed from him. And I besought thy disciples to cast him out and they could not. And Jesus answering said, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you and suffer you? Bring thy son hither. Another task, another opportunity for him to show his power show his glory to heal a man and to cast out a devil. But it had just happened that the most glorious moment save the resurrection had just happened on earth. And now the multitude has come and someone in the crowd has a problem that no other man can fix. Can you imagine the weight and the pressure the spiritual warfare that Jesus fought as a man. It's greater than anything we've ever experienced, but he did it for you and he did it for me so that we could know no matter what we face, no matter how dark it gets outside, no matter how people think or perceive the church to be in 2023, no matter what the truth does to people when they hear the truth, that if you'll be consistent, that God will keep his end of the deal. He'll be faithful and true to sustain you all the way home. Don't give up, but understand the fight that we're a part of. Great victory, great power, great movements of God, little victories, great lessons, a spiritual learning or an understanding, the cost, the weight of carrying a burden, and yes, even the spiritual cost of consistency of power with God. The cost of influence with people is understanding that you're at war and then it's going to cost you. The greater is he that is in me. I thought I was at a Baptist church. Greater is he that is in me. Winston Parish, I'm saved. I'm saved. I have the indwellment of the Holy Spirit of God. The same power that brought Jesus up out of the grave lives in me. And the same power lives in you. And greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. Go get your boots on and go to war. Be consistent for God. Pray, read your Bible, bring your babies to church. And then on Sunday when we come here to worship, maybe somebody will shout. Maybe somebody will say, amen, preacher. That's the truth of God's word. Somebody be consistent for the sake of the war that we're all fighting. And let's do it for his glory. In Jesus' name, all God's people said, amen.